Good morning, City Lights. Hey, hey, Jesus is alive, y'all. Good morning. Good morning. This is such a great day to be together. Anytime we have the opportunity um, to sing praise to Jesus, to hear from God's word, um, I just want to say God has something to say to you this morning, and you can't change that fact. How does that feel? God's got something to say through his word, and we are taking great hope in that. Um, it's, a, it's a fun word this morning. It's a good news word this morning. Um, I want you to open your Bibles, if you brought your Bible or device, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, if you don't know me, by the way, my name's Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, if you happen to be new with us this morning... We are uh, working our way through a book of the Bible called Ephesians. It's written by a really significant figure in the Christian story, uh, Christian history. His name's Paul. He was an apostle. He was a first century evangelist, church planter, pastor, and he had a personal encounter with the risen Jesus after his death and resurrection. And Paul wrote a lot of your New Testament. Um, am I really loud? I feel like I'm, does this sound good? Okay, great, great. I love it. Perfect. Thank you, Dale. Dale will tell me in the back. Um, Paul, in particular, spent two or three years with this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a big metropolitan city, um, not a godly city. So what Paul did was he went in, he evangelized, he shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. The Messiah had come. He said, you can be reconciled to God, and he raised up disciples, and then he raised up pastors and elders, and he left this church, and he went on a missionary journey, and he's writing this letter now in Rome, in chains, in house arrest, and he's hearing news of how this church is doing, and he's wanting to send essential information to them about who God is, who they are, who Jesus is, who they are in him, and what the Christian life looks like. And so, so far, as we've started in chapter one, and we go till we're done, our normal mode of operation, the first three chapters of Ephesians are a very rich, eloquent way of Paul saying, here is all that you are and every blessing that you have in Jesus by faith in him. Listen, you don't have to do a bunch of work to get right with God. You have to believe in a work that's already been done. Amen. Jesus came. He bore your sin on the cross. He gives you redemption. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a new birth. And so um, we get to this place now in the text. And by way of introduction, I, I want to invite uh, each of you into my home life. Um, I'm not proud of this, but I'm also not ashamed of it. Um, there's a lot of shame going on right here. Um, Kate and I really enjoy the show Stranger Things. Has anyone, anyone seen that on, on Netflix? Um, good, 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 good. Um, so Stranger Things is in its fourth season. It's the show about all this uh, crazy underworld supernatural stuff that's supposed to happen in this small town in Indiana. And if you watch Stranger Things, you love rooting for the characters because they're all these really nerdy 80s kids <laughs> who play Dungeons and Dragons and, and listen to, you know, ridiculous music and all sorts of stuff. Um, in the latest season of Stranger Things, uh, it gets really dark. And uh, at the be beginning of the season, you see some really horrible things that the villain in the show does. And at the very last episode, or at least the most recent one that's come out, I'm sitting there watching it in the living room, and um, this villain, you kind of see his origin story. Like how he went from just being a kid to being how he is now. And he goes on this big monologue that in real life no 
nobody would ever let her get in the house again. And just for like, you know, 30 minutes at the school back. So he does. And he says something that it just struck me as I was reading our text this week. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, we live in a cruel, oppressive world dictated by data cables. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades. Each life, a faded lesser copy of the history page. Wake up, eat, work, sleep, reproduce, and die. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for it all to be over, all while performing and serving silly, terrible plays day after day. Let's pray and go home. Let me really encourage you to do that yourself right now. Now what that led that character to is that he became a character, yes, in a fictional world. He uses this revelation to become a disgusting creature who wreaks havoc on people's lives. He goes to a really weird dark place. That will not be the application of this little clip here for us. But what I want to use it for is, is an appeal to you, an appeal to you that this can be what life can feel like, no? It, it can feel like a hamster wheel, and it's just kind of the same thing over and over and over again. And I want you to know, friends, God wants to break through in that life. God wants us to resolve to have a bigger vision for our lives. And so the appeal of the text this morning, I think, is captured well in this metaphor from pastor and author. Richard Sokin, he says, before we came to Christ, we were enslaved and captive to sin, hostages of Satan, awaiting our death sentence under God's law. It's as if we were imprisoned in a stinking cell. And even though we sometimes gazed through the bars and wondered what life would be like outside, we couldn't leave. We lived in the darkness and dirt of the cell, unaware of how filthy we had become. But on the cross... Christ paid the ransom price to open the door of our cell, and he redeemed us with his precious blood. He has brought us out into the bright sunshine, (laughs) blinking with amazement as we begin to realize in the light of the sun just how filthy we have become and how beautiful life and how light can be. We now long to be clean like Jesus, but in our darker moments, perhaps after too much drink or in bad company or some self-pity, crawl back into our old cell and curl up again. Because we're different now, we find it miserable. But we realize that the door of the cell is permanently open. The blood of Christ has paid not only to set us free, but to keep us free too. And Jesus will repeatedly send people into our cell to pick us up, drag us out into the light once more, going sometimes willingly, sometimes reluctantly, and one day when he returns to transform us forever, he'll close the door behind us, and we will never return to the place of bondage. Paul has written a few chapters at this point describing who we are in Christ, but he knows that the battle in character has changed. The battle against sin, the battle against our nature, the devil, the battle against the world around us. So he's going to plead with this church, this young church in Ephesus, and with us to keep walking through the open prison door in the new life that we have in Christ. Paul's going to say, hey, look, there are old versions of every one of us in this room that we need to put off. We need to actually leave behind. We need to reject. We need to stop going to, like a prison, 
who's been given freedom and offered every blessing of freedom but wants to run back into the prison cell and curl up in the corner. No, 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 prison cell. Jesus in John 8, 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Some of us this morning, if we're being honest, do feel trapped or maybe only vulnerable to a degree. There are areas of our lives where we know deep down, deep in our bones, deep down, God still wants to transform us. There are parts of our emotions, our wallets, our relationships that we know he wants to change, but we're kind of in a dull season. We're apathetic. Maybe we would describe it like this. We're just no longer sensitive to God's leading. And we're kind of okay with that. The reason this is significant is because if you're a Christian, if you've bowed your knee to Jesus, you've trusted in his sacrificial death, you've said, run my life, Jesus. Paul would say earlier in chapter 4, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Your life, Christian, has been flipped right side up by Jesus. Being reconciled to the living God changes everything. Please, Christian, live like it. Not only that, but we're going to see in our text this morning how destructive and painful life is when we keep returning to the sinful habits. We keep returning to the cold, dirty jail cell of sin over and over again. Heard it said that grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit and His power in us is like living life with a handicap, which by definition is to make something more difficult. To impede progress, to impede success, you may go to heaven, but you are taking that hard I wonder if perhaps we could use a very simple proverb or at least one thing to make sure we say it right. I saw it in this text, Proverbs 26, 11, that the dog that returns to its vomit is a fool that returns to his folly. God does not want that for us. I mean, there's more for us, and indeed God has provided more for us in Jesus. The final significant goal this morning is that people in our lives, people in our families, people in our communities, in our workplace, people in our very homes, they really need the spirit-filled version of Jesus. They really need not the old us, but the new us of Jesus. So let us walk in it. I've captured the main point of this passage. That's not me anymore. That's not you anymore. So let's begin in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This is what Paul writes. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Listen to all the ways that he's about to describe a person apart from God. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Um, I want to take you into my personal life a little bit over the last couple weeks. Two Wednesday nights ago, we had our city group, and it's always a blast. You should join a city group. Um, it's so edifying and fun to, to connect with people on a regular basis uh, who love Jesus and need to be encouraged in their walk like you do. So uh, everyone had left our house, 8.30 at night, something like that. It's summertime, so it was still light out. Um, our front door is wide open. It's just a glass door, and a doorbell rings. And um, I look in, into our ring, and the doorbell sounds. There's a young man standing there with a iPad in his hand and a polo shirt, 
y'all know where I'm going with this. <laughs> and I immediately am thinking, what is he trying to say? And secondly, I think, why is our door still open? <laughs> so I walk to the door. I answer it. Very cordial. And, hey, how's it going, man? And the guy didn't waste no time. He starts to jump right into how our life would be so much better if we had his testimony service servicing our home. And um, I quickly learn that this is a guy who uh, will not take no for an answer. So uh, I don't know if you know me, but I am just like fight or flight kind of people. I'm a little bit more on the fight side. And, and so uh, this guy is doing a great job. I've been in sales. He, he, he continues to, to answer every time I tell him, no, man, I'm, I'm really not interested with another. But have you considered this? But I'll bring the price down more like this, but I'll do this. I think, and my wife could confirm, I think he was standing there talking to me for 20, 25 minutes at my front door. I shook his hand and said, I'm really thankful. I want to save you the time and, and go, you know, talk to other people three different times. And he shook my hand back and said, all right, that sounds good. But have you considered, and just it kept going. So I come back inside. He, he's gone. And my wife is kind of starved. She's standing in the kitchen the whole time and listening. And she's like, I, that's like borderline inappropriate. I feel like he, he just would not like leave our house. Like that was really, I've never heard an interaction like that. I was thrilled. I was like, this guy's awesome. I guarantee you he's making a lot of money because he's really good at his job. And he just kept going and going and going. So I was kind of, you know, drawn in by this guy. Well, lo and behold, the next night I'm in our driveway and I'm grilling up some chicken next to our garage. And here he comes on his little two wheel thing that, you know, because apparently you don't need to get steps in if you're going to go and sell. And so Comes in and I wave him down. Hey, come here, come here, come here, come here. He comes up into the driveway and, and I tell him like, hey, we're not going to have any conversations about pest control, but I do just want to get to know you. Um, and I just felt a burden for him. He's a young guy. He's out here just doing sales. You never know what his life story could be. And so I start to press in and, you know, for 20, 25 minutes, I'm standing there talking and I give him plenty of opportunity to leave and he never does. Um, I'm, I'm doing most of the talking, you know, it's kind of like the roles have been reversed and he was trying to sell me some pest control. I was trying to sell him Jesus. And, um, you know, I can't hide as an evangelist. You can't hide when someone asks you what you do for a living. You know, you just don't attack them. Oh, okay. So that's the kind of conversation we're going to have. Um, by the time the conversation was over, I, I was heartbroken. And I felt really sad to this man because I began to ask him about God and about his something up in life that to anyone would have some kind of meaning, he would give me the same phrase. And I'm not making this up. This is what he said. I promise you it's because you live such a good life. I would say, do you know your parents? Um, I kind of left them alone for a few days. Do you know what they're up to these days? I promise you I know what it is. Have you, if they ever reached out to you, would you reconcile and say, yes, I know. No, that, that's not my job. If they've done it, I've never responded with that. Just like siblings, I have no idea where they are, what they're doing. Do you have kids? Why are you in sales? Why are you doing this job? Like, to what end are you, you know, just randomly wanting to accomplish it in a five-year plan? Oh, man, I'm only doing this because it's better than doing nothing. And I continue to, to ask all sorts of questions. I even got to the point where I said, do you have any friends that know you? Do you know them? Do you feel like you can confide in them? Is life just really hard? He's like, no, I, I go to Vegas with some of the guys that I do 
salesman and I was sort of like my friend and I was like, would, would they be sad if you were gone? You know, would you be sad if they were gone? And then I asked him, would you go to a funeral or something tragic happened? And he sighed and he said, no, I promise you it does not bring any good to me. I was standing next to a guy that my heart broke for for his life. I, I could not pinpoint anything in him that brought me a purpose in life or with today. And he was a walking, talking spiritual experience, living a life that just wasn't going anywhere. There was no direction, no destination. That's what Paul is describing in your life and my life. He's saying he had Peter had no aim. There was no aim in sight. There was no purpose. There was nowhere that anything was going. And that's how life is underneath the sun, apart from God. Um, that's the wisdom that scripture gives us. He, he says that we people are darkened in their understanding. They have no spiritual discernment about the things of God and their spiritual reality. He says that there's ignorance in people that's due to what? Hardness of heart. What that's telling us, church, is that Behind every intellectual objection to God lies a heart attitude. And when the heart is dull and it's numb and it's apathetic to the things of God, listen to me, things start to get worse. The warning that Paul gives, if you look at verse 19, they have become callous. Nothing that can penetrate this thick layer of I don't care on a person's life. And and that I don't care just gives way to I'm going to live life for me. Everything is going to revolve around me and just everything is temporary pleasures that I want to pursue. And one day I'll just die and it'll all go to black. And that's the legacy that I leave. That's the life that I live. And I just, I wanted to look this man in the eye and I did. I said, God loves you. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God cares so deeply for you. He gave his son's life for you. God actually does have a purpose and a plan and a will for you. God wants so much more for you. And so I gave him my number, and I said, if, there, if you ever get to a place where you want to know more about that, you call me, and let's talk. And he said, well, why don't I just give you mine? And I said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I know better. I'm not going to waste my time texting you, dude. You're not texting me back. You have my number. And so, um, church, I'm not going to give you his name, but I would invite you to pray for him. And I would also invite each of us to look in the mirror. Because even as Christians, we tend to look at a person who's not and say, look at all this. Do we not drift often into humanism? Do we not have new life in Christ and yet we drift into a place where we just feel like day by day happens, then month by month, then year by year, and nothing has changed in our life. No, no like life change and, and power has brought about new convictions and, and a new a new will in us and, and, and different emotions and, and, and we just think that's okay and that's not the life that God desires for us. That's not the life that he's given us in Christ. All of it is, is best captured by the statement right in the middle of verse 13 where Paul says don't live a life that's alienated from the life of Christ. And church, look at the declaration that he's making here. We need to wake up from our stone. Wake up. Verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Those words, learned Christ. That's not found anywhere else in your Bible. 
learn Christ is so personal. It's not learning about him. It's learning him. It's knowing him. That's what eternal life is. It's to know and have personal relationship with God. Paul is saying you're not alienated from that life anymore. You have it, Christian. You have a personal acquaintance and a friendship with Jesus. And in verse 21, he says, you have heard about him. And literally that translates, you've heard him. As if he's speaking to you and you can hear his voice. Again, it's so personal. It's not reading a book that we might learn about someone. It's, it's as if God is sitting there saying to us, hey, let me teach you about this. Let me show you who I am. Can you hear my voice? Sometimes we talk about the saving knowledge of the gospel. We want to be a gospel-centered church. And we talk about uh, the wisdom and truth of the word. And we want to be a word-centered church. And sometimes people talk about the, the, the power of God's grace. And we want to be a grace-centered church. And these are all pointing to the capital P, person, who all of these things point to. It's the person who accomplished all of it. It's the person who provides all of it. It's the person who gave his life and shed his blood so that we could experience all of it. It's Jesus, the real living person who rose from the grave. What a friend we have in him, amen? Do you remember what it felt like when Christianity was no longer a religion? It was no longer a tradition? Have you felt that? It was no longer just a set of morals or something you passed on to you from mom and dad, but it became a living person. It became a faith that you possessed in someone. Do you remember when Jesus became real to you? When you realized the truth of his resurrection? That's what happened for me in college. I remember that all of a sudden I I wasn't just singing songs about God, but I was singing songs to God. I wasn't reading stories about him, but I was listening to him tell me stories about himself. I wasn't introducing tears to a system of belief. I was introducing people to a God that I had same Jesus today who is speaking to us on your other system. Hey, I've made some changes in your life. Do you know that? I've given you a new identity. Do you know that you're not who you once were? I've chosen you. I've forgiven you. I'm imparting to you. I'm empowering you. I'm sending you. I'm uniting you with other brothers and sisters in faith. I've, I've freed you. You don't have to be who you once were. I have the power to change and transform your life, not just in the past, but today and tomorrow and the next day. You don't have to run to that thing that you depend on anymore to escape. You don't have to say that and respond that way in that relationship anymore. You don't have to choose that thing anymore. You don't have to bow down and worship that and make your life revolve around that anymore. You were a slave to sin. I am your redeemer. I have freed you. I've allowed that prison door to open up that you can walk in new life. I purchased you at great cost to me. And Paul says in verse 22, if you know this Jesus, it's time to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The words corrupt and deceitful, this is what they say. God knows that sin will promise you more than it can give. Sin will cost you more than you can pay. Sin, in any form, will 
walking away from God's best, it erodes our own soul. It creates a divide and a relational chasm between us and God and our experience of Him. It always results in small waves, big waves, and then sometimes small waves that lead to the big waves, hurt, pain, division, wounding, scarring of people around you. Sin divides It makes us self-absorbed. It makes us prideful and it makes us worshipers of things that take the throne where only Jesus has. It makes us worshipers of of power and comfort and sex and money and pleasure and self. It is corrupt and deceitful and weak. God has a greater vision for our life. And so Paul is going to close this and I'm going to move fast through this with application. He's going to take all of those truths and he's going to say, now in light of that, here's how you ought to live. This is where Ephesians, I feel like maybe for the first time, moves from all of these things that are true about them to the second half of the epistle. Where where God comes in and he says, hey, according to all of these things, this is how you live your life now. And I'm going to pray right now before we dive into this. Because I know that every single person in this room has the opportunity to hear from the Holy Spirit. And God wants to give you new clothes in Christ. He wants you to take off old garments that were your old self. He wants you to put on new clothes that represent your new identity. This morning, I'm just asking, could God show you something? Could he reveal to you multiple things that you need to take small steps of faith to reject the old man and say, that's not me anymore, and to take on the new man? So let's pray. God, we ask right now that the Holy Spirit would just come alive in this room. Speak to us through your word. Let me get out of the way. And God, maybe for the first time in a long time, we need you to re-instruct us to hear your voice and not walk away from consider how much you love us, how much we represent, how much of you is in us that is reflecting your glory, reflecting your character. I need us to understand real quick what's at stake in this instruction from Paul. If you're a Christian this morning, then being a disciple of Jesus stay away from it because that's not what Christianity is. Being a Christian is being someone who has a personal relationship with God like Jesus. God changes how we see, how we think, and how we feel about things. That changes what we look like and what we do. Can I say that one more time? God is after your heart. He changes how we see, think, and feel about everything. That changes what we look like and what we say and what we do. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's the grace of God that trains us in the way we should go. It's the grace of God that makes this kind of living more satisfying. It's the grace of God that makes it possible for us to live this way. Not only that, but these commandments are merciful and covenant-oriented in all that they do. These are meant for people who arm their ancient life and share faith and identity and character and hope and joy. God, through Paul, is going to go to great lengths to show us that he cares about the health and the goodness of his people. 
cares about us together. So do not make the mistake of hearing these things and merely thinking that obeying them and living in them benefits you. Don't privatize them. They are things that benefit our entire faith. These are not just individual, solitary junctures. Paul has the reputation of Jesus saying, here we go, church. Therefore, (laughs) what's the therefore therefore? Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Can I just ask, church, can we trust each other? Can I actually trust people in this church to call me to repentance? Can I trust people when I feel shame and guilt to bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus to people? Can I trust people not to continue to inflict condemnation on me? Can we trust one another to speak the truth in love and not condemn each other? We keep going. Paul says in verse 24, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity devil. He's saying goodbye to rage and hello to godliness. Notice that he says that anger ain't bad. We should be mad at injustice. We should be mad at the church at Ascension. We should be mad at people in our lives. We should be mad at pain and brokenness and abuses in power. Jesus flipped tables in the temple because there was corruption happening in the house of God. The issue is not a godly concern. It's how it's expressed been said that anger is an asset that can kill you. Anyone experienced that before? Two people, great. Anger can take over the will. It can hinder our ability to be led by the Spirit. We pop off and we abuse with words. We have violent or aggressive behavior. Anger is often the way that we actually express our grief to God. It's easier to to be angry than it is to be sad. It's a more immature person that expresses anger person that tries to learn how to repent and grieve. Let me continue here. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share. Don't exploit anyone among you. Anyone say goodbye to Corbin. Hello to Corbin. Your tendency is to be fixated on the skimpiest shortcut, borderline or full-blown fraudulent way to increase your wealth, a.k.a. dishonest work, or if your tendency is to make more and more so you can have more and more. God is saying this is not enough. An honest worker is important. The word share, that you may share, in the original language it is metadidomi. That actually means sharing the gospel. It means in the way we're generous with what we have, we are showing who Jesus is. Our earning and our giving in sacrifice Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Goodbye to bad company. Hello to encouragers. If your disposition is to be critical, gossiping, slandering, if you're a complainer, if you're misrepresenting Jesus and you're hurting his witness, you're dividing the church, that's not who you are in Christ finally the last three verses, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind and gentle to 
other hand, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Where right now, church, in your life as a Christian, are you grieving disappointment from somebody you know that you love? Where are you broken with attitudes that are in your own self corrupted and seized and sinful? Not your own self, but God's self. I will never forget an argument I heard from a young man that is like a grain on my heart that I have for years and years for the rest of my life. And he said this. I was really, really angry early on in my life. Um, first few years of my life, anger possessed me. And it often found its expression in people that I loved. And there was one time, and I don't remember the details, where I blew up. And I said a lot of things that I wish that any husband would never say to his wife. And it was this desire to punish Kate for something that she had done, failed to do, or somewhere that I thought to be and we got to a place where it just felt like there was nowhere to go like there was no progress to be made in the conversation I was stuck curled up back in a prison cell on the floor with my fist saying I really like this guy and you should marry him and I will never forget Kate looked at me and in a word of wisdom that could only come from God she said Glenn I forgive you I didn't even ask for forgiveness because that's not who you are that moment, my wife saw who I could be in Jesus. And in that moment, I saw who my wife was. She had every reason to not forgive me. She forgave me instantly in that moment because it was not about me. That's not who you are in Christ, church. That's not who you are in Christ. What could God stand ready to do if you put it right there? If we trusted that that's who we are in Christ. I want to pray in closing as Jesus dies and Sarah prays over us. But we're going to just ask for this here today. So Jesus, we pray and we say thank you for your word. We say thank you for all of its instruction, all of its encouragement. We say thank you that you have brought us from a place of futile living, a place of hopelessness and aimlessness and meaninglessness. And God, you have brought us into the sunshine. You brought us into the light. You've changed our hope and the anchor of our life. And I want to pray right now for somebody who has not yet given their life to Christ. That person who was imprisoned for a sin they committed. There is no reconciliation with you. There is no life in you. They are alienated from you. God, would you help them to see the good news that Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. Jesus invites them into a life of forgiveness, life of exchange, a relationship that you could live with God. Save that person who them into your family today, God. And would you bring our church to a new place? Would you help us take new ground in our faith? Remind us of the people that we are. Help us to take off the old and put on